All right, let's uh, turn our hearts to uh, the Bible, to, to the text this morning. We are in the book of Mark, and uh, having a great joy in the book of Mark, but I am, I am actually going to, I only want to talk about one word this morning. Can you believe that? One word. One word, one word sermon. Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> Just one word and I sit down. And, uh, and so and the excitement about it is based upon, uh, you'll see as we kind of uh, un, un, uh, unearth the text. Now, we are in the book of Mark. Mark. Mark is this wonderful travelogue of the life of Jesus Christ. It is, one of his favorite words is immediately. It's almost like, bang, like that, always. Everything's always happening at lightning speed and movement. And, but we've, as we've been reading it, as we've been discovering together, the book of Mark is actually a narratively crafted masterpiece. And this is why, one of the reasons why, by the way, it has been successfully done by actors. If you've seen people have memorized the whole book of Mark and do a performance of it, it works. Because its narrative structure has moved so quickly, it's exciting, it's interesting. We, we, we believe it was the uh, first of all of the Gospels. And uh, I imagine, uh, and as tradition would tell us, I imagine that Peter, uh, the demand for a written word about Jesus was very, 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 very uh, urgent. The early church exploded with the good news of Jesus, and 3,000 people, 3,000 member churches were, uh, rose up in Jerusalem, and, and, uh, and Peter was moving to Antioch and going to different places, and there was a need for a quick gospel, like a quick, like a track. Does anybody use tracks anymore at all? Does anybody remember the tracks? That's what this is like. It's that quick. It's that immediate, in your hand kind of gospel about Jesus. And we've been reading it, and we are right at the pivot. The, the gospel is about the pivot right here. And everything else is kind of led up to Peter, and we believe this was John Mark, potentially, one of the disciples, narrating Peter's recollections. Peter is about to recognize with all of Christ's followers, the disciples, they're all about to recognize Jesus for who he is, who he's claiming to be, the Messiah, the Christ. Now, this, this pivot point now, everything kind of changes. And all of a sudden, the momentum actually picks up and Christ is headed to death, to, to murder to torture, to ignominy, to suffering, to nakedness, to brutality. And, and, and the strange thing about the acceleration of the plot here, unlike even any of the fiction novels we know and the stories we're familiar with, he is completely aware of what is happening. He is self-aware in a way that is a little bit uh, unsettling, a little bit uh, uh, odd for us. So we, not, we, we don't move through life like with that kind of certainty. That he is, he is aware in the narrative. He's, he is aware and he begins to explore and describe and give that awareness of what he's doing to the disciples. But they're just as confused as we are when we read it. Like we can read it and be a little bit alarmed by it, but they're just, they're like, what? No. And he starts using language that is extraordinarily peculiar. And that's what I'm going to explore today. 
That's a big ramp up to this text. But I want to put it in context. And then we're going to look at the word must. That's the word must, by the way. M-U-S-T. Must. And after we kind of picked it out of the narrative, I want to explore it theologically. Because uh, it's an important word. What must God do? You ever thought about that? Can we say that about God? I think we can if he says it about himself. Let's, let's read this. Mark 8, 27 through 33. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. Uh, others say Elijah. Others, uh, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he, and he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. In the spirit of how we began worship, let's ask God to, to author this, this message. Father, we ask for you to be the one who speaks. You to be the one who elicits and arouses and completes our understanding and insight. We ask for you to be the one who preaches. Uh, forgive the sins of the one who preaches, for there are many. And, uh, and, and give us together, together as your children, insight into who you are. In Christ's name, amen. All right, how do you, what, what's a word to describe everything that is? Just give me, a, just give me, a, give me some words. What, we're going to talk about this. This little stand and the air and the sun and the moon and the stars and me. What do we call all this? Matter. Okay, we call it matter. All right, that's all like that. We'll call it matter. What's another word we might, might use for it? The universe. Good, good, the universe. Um, what's another word we might use for it? Uh, reality. I like that. Reality, not to be confused with the, the church that meets down the street. It's a good church, actually. Uh, uh, so, all right, let's, let's now, the re I want to start, we're, gonna, we're, going to, we're going big here today, guys. I'm, I've been thinking about this sermon for weeks and weeks and weeks, and I've been concerned about going like right over our head. I, I'm afraid it's going to go over our heads. I don't think it will, but be patient with me here. I don't think it will. But I'm, the, you know that, remember that last, you see the last line there where it said, you don't have the things, you have, you were, Christ is upset with Peter, right? 
he's upset because Peter, he says, Peter has what? He has in mind the things of man, not the things of God. And something about Peter has that we, have, we share with Peter. We have a view in this generation, this city, everybody, we all, we all have a view of the way things are that is centered on us, the things of man. And in that, let's take all of matter and the universe and reality, and we see all of these things, and God is a part of them. We lump God in. Now, some people would say God was just a creation of man, right? But still, if, if you say that, let's say you don't believe in theism the way I do, or the way I'm convinced the scriptures teach, you would still say that the idea of God is a part of the matter and universe and everything. So, but the idea is that this is a closed set, and that really this all, this is all, and so if we were to say everything that is in reality, God is a part of reality. And I would say that is wrong. That is a, a man-made way of looking at the universe. It is not the way the scriptures describe the universe at all. No, there is matter of the universe and reality, and completely distinct from it is the God of eternity. You could take the span of 14 billion years, however you want to say how old the universe is. I know I shouldn't do this, but. Uh, I, uh, or how, however many billions, whatever it is, and you could shrink it down to a dot, literally a dot, on all that God is. That is the perspective. Unchanging, eternal, infinite, eternal, and unchanging, from everlasting to everlasting, he is God, we are matter. He is creator, we are creature. Why is that so important? Because God is not a contingent being. What that means is, is that God is, above all things, God is free. Eternally, amazingly, completely free. What does that mean? He, nothing controls him. Nothing makes him do anything. He is to be who he is. He, is, he chooses and his pleasure and eternity he is radically, completely, openly, eternally free because nobody can make him do anything. Does that make sense? And so in relationship to the creation, he is completely free. But there's a weird wrinkle when this word must comes in. Because he must be who he is and what he decides. Who he is and what he decides. I remember standing in the library and uh, you know telling people I was a Christian, and it was maybe 10th, 9th grade, 8th grade. I remember the library. It was a really cool library at school. And the library was a place you know I hid from bullies and people like that. And because uh, I was a little bit of a geek. And I remember uh, Mike, Mike Hall turns to me and he's like, yo, you know, I can't believe you believe in God. It's so stupid. I'm like, why is it stupid that I believe in God? He goes, well, well, <laughs> uh, could God create a boulder that he couldn't lift? And I remember literally freaking out. 
I remember my entire faith was up for grabs. I remember being like, oh no. <laughs> Did you ever have that moment? Like when somebody says something that really shakes you, you're like, I don't have an answer for that. And I remember mental gymnastics, you know, can God create, if God can do all things, can God create a boulder that he can't lift? You know, I was really, really shaken. Let me show you just how immature my faith was, but I was really shaken by it. I'm not anymore, so I'm okay now. <laughs> you don't worry about me. And, we, and there's a really, very beautiful, like, very simple answer to that. Uh, God is not a fool. <laughs> uh, God is not a fool. He's not. He can't, he's not capable of being a fool. There are many things that God can't do. That may be easy to understand. What but the list of things he must do, I want you to, the reason I bring this whole thing up here is I want you to, I want you to stumble on that passage where Christ in his self-awareness turns to these men and he goes, guess what? There's no choices here. I must do this. What does that mean? If, if he is the Son of God, that, that Mark 1, 1's thesis is this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. If he is this, if he is this God in this place, why does he, ha it's like he's just, and it's funny, now Mark uses this word, necessary, must, not very frequently. Mark, uh, I'm sorry, Luke uses it uh, 41 times. Of the 102 occurrences of this particular word, this word of, and this word in Greek has all of that logic, gravity kind of concept, you know, like it's necessary. Like it's something that must logically, materially, physically, properties of nature, physical law, everything. That is what this word implies. Absolute, inexorable, ultimate, complete necessity. Because of A, then B. Because of B, then C. Does that make sense? Like that's the meaning and force of the Greek word. And Luke uses it abundantly. Mark, not as much. But I think we still need to stumble on the concept and stumble on the idea and, and ask ourselves, what does it mean? What does it mean? In his masterpiece, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, John Murray talks about this. And, and uh, if you want to read it, I, I encourage you to read it. It's just beautifully written. But what he says is this. And this is consistent with the scriptures. God is free. So, uh, George, stand up. Now, God didn't have to love you. And so, no, it's, it's free, right? Look, look, look. I mean, I, yeah, your mother probably loves you. But so, God, God didn't have to. Your mother had to. So, when God said... And George hasn't known God his whole life. When God said, at some point, we don't know when, sometime in turn, he said, I'm going to love that man. I am going to take that man and make him my son. I am going to do it. Whoa. You can have a seat. I'm sorry. I don't know why I just stand up even. <laughs> I'm just trying to. I want you to see how immediate this is. When he did that, you know what he said yes to? Not just yes, but I must. He made the free choice to love George, but then... What happened? That he must suffer and die. Does that make sense? He moved from being a free being to now, I must die. I must send my son 
And Jesus is aware of that. If George would be loved freely, I must die. Something very beautiful happens here. Because every must that comes out of a free choice is beautiful, isn't it? If you have to do something that you didn't choose to do, aren't you miserable? If you have to do it, you do it, you got to work, you, know, you may not obligate, but you know, really, you don't choose a lot of things in life. And there's things you chose that you regret. <laughs> I get that. But, you, but you're caught up in all sorts of mustness. But God isn't. He was, in his original choice, was totally radically free. And because it was free to love, his mustness is, comes out of love too. Does that make sense? His mustness originates out of love and passion for his creatures because he loved freely and freely gave his son. Um, why am I excited about this? Why am I so excited about this? Because I think this has deep purchase in your life. Yeah, I really do. Actually, as abstract as these ideas are, a lot of us have thought about some of these things. And, um, but I, it's amazing how much purchase this has in our life. It has implications for everything for us as a church and as people. First, and I want to kind of open those up. I want to explore them together. Um, oh, glasses. <laughs> All right, so, uh, um, so uh, exploring these together, I want you to first realize that Lady Gaga is right. Yes, Lady Gaga is right. I know. Who knew? Lady Gaga understands eternity at some level. <laughs> Edge of glory. That's not what I was thinking of. Uh, born this way. One of the things that this first does is gives us an insight into the way things are. And the insight is this. If you're free or you're bound, whatever you are, free or slave, it controls what you must be when you decide things. What I mean by this is this. We're not free like God's here. We're contingent. We're born with genes and decisions and choices and parents that messed us up, right? Amen? <laughs> it's all their fault, isn't it? It's really their fault. It's, come on, that's, let's just say it. No, kidding. We like to blame them, but, but, but we're, we're contingent beings. We're affected by space and time. We can't help it. We're creatures. Now, but when Lady Gaga says, I'm born this way, and this, by the way, this, and she sings it, and it's shepherd, and she co chorused by this generation, it is a true insight. We are born this way. And we are free, and that's the problem. We're free to do everything we want. That's the problem, because that's all we do. Did you just follow what I just did there? You must do everything you want. Yep. That's the problem. You want all the wrong things. We are slaves to our desires. You see, it, 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 what's wonderful about this view of the universe and its biblical accuracy, the insight it gives us into who we are is that we do all the things we want to do, and that's our problem. We are slaves to our nature. We, when this generation wants to make excuses because it was born this way, I'm saying amen. <laughs> the problem is it isn't an excuse. 
It just explains accurately, intimately, and really why many men and women are at pivotal points like Jesus is and say, I must do this. You know, they're, they're speaking truly. They, because the problem with men and women's sinfulness is they only can do what they want to do. And that's the problem. They do what they want to do. And they want all the wrong things. You see? We're not free. We're not free. But it says that Christ came, it's for freedom that he came to set us free. And so what is this idea of this God entering and Christ saying, looking at a cross and saying, I must go. And, and how does that intersect conversion, the idea of transformation for our city and our time? I'm telling you, this is cash money. You know why? Because I cannot save San Francisco and I can't save you. And I'm tired of trying. I can't do it. And what this means is that God has to save. He has to choose. He has to move. I just want you, I just want to breathe a sigh of relief. You see, if I'm looking for God to act and grab his mustness into my life, hmm. I'm, I'm going to make this claim. You worry, we worry far too much about how to convert people. It's not our business. Now, that doesn't mean we don't have a lot to say and do and be and must be. Witnesses, witnessing and love to share. But the, you're off the hook. Now, I want to explain something else. Some of you don't know God yet. Some of you have not yet been converted or transformed. Do you know what's beautiful about, uh, about coming to God? When God shows you who he is and his freedom, you know what happens when he shows you the cross? You know what, you know what happens? I know what happens. I saw it happen to my dad. So it happened to me. It's called irresistible grace. You know what happens? You'll see. I've seen it happen. People are like, that no interest in God at all. All of a sudden, they get the cross. They get Jesus' love. They get the free offer of God's love and the cross, and they just kind of go, and they can't stop. And they're like, I don't want this. I'm kicking this guy. I don't want this. I don't want this. I, I want this. Now, if you're, if you're investigating Christianity, that will be your, part of your experience. You see, once you get God and his love, get God, get Christ in the cross, get the sacrifice, you know, the Holy Spirit begins to activate, you know what happens? You must come. Nobody's going to keep you from it. You must come to worship. You, uh, like mustness begins to enter into spiritually into your life. With new, and, and, and it's the reverse of what I just said. Remember what I said? The problem with the sinful people of San Francisco and your pastor is that I must do all the things I want to do. And what's beautiful when God recreates us? We want to do what? New things. And now we're free. And a new direction happens. You see, this model for the universe explains conversion and the way it works and why things work and why they don't and why we're stuck the way we're stuck. What implications does it have beyond that? Why, why, why am I so scatterbrained? Where do I put my glasses? Oh, um, sorry. Um, what, what about worship? Well, let's take a look here. Let's take a look. How does this affect worship? Remember how I begin worship today? I said... I, look, one of the problems with the church in our generation 
is it wants to create a worship feeling. And I like worship feelings, don't you? Don't they feel good? I like them. They're good. I'm not against them. But if you want to get to the feeling, which we do, haven't we all done that? We want to get to the feeling. We just want the feeling. But if we shortcut the fact that God authors worship, not Peter, not me, not it, that he creates it, uh, we could have something really beautiful happening. We could have this freedom and mustness give us new joy. I would follow this uh, in worship. In, in, the, in that verse, what's the verse number that that, that verse is in? Uh, it's in verse, uh, verse 31. He must suffer. We're going to look at that in a second. But the must includes every clause. He must what? He must rise. You see, when God freely chose to love us, a must came into effect. A mustness came out of eternity. A mustness, a must came out of eternal things into space and time, into reality, the matter, and the universe. And now we must rise. We are caught up. The reason worship is so wonderful is we are caught up in the plans of an eternal God to rise from the dead and conquer death. That's why worship, that's why he creates worship. That's why, that's why if we get caught up in a vision of what his free love means and how it works itself in the universe, we, it's an invitation, isn't it? Into joy. We're being invited into joy and freedom. All right, there's implication for worship, implication for evangelism, implication for conversion. What about the vision of our church? Um... I'm a church planter, which means that I am a mercenary individual. In other words, like, I'm chasing a deadline, and, and like there's money raised, and if you don't get enough people and enough, you know, like all this, make it work, make it work, make it work, baby. I got to make it work. What's going to work? You know, you get, this, you get into this vision statement, you know, what's the vision? It's really a way to. Get people, and it's all, and you may have heard me, you've heard, some of you have heard me use this expression that's very crass in uh, church planting, but it's all about nickels and noses, baby. You're, 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 you're a student, you're not a, any nickels with you at all, uh, <laughs> but your nose. It's all about attendance and finances and all these crass things. And so, what people do, what men do, and what I did early in ministry, for example, and we have a minister here, he's probably had the same thing. You get caught up in like trying to get a new program started, you know, like you, oh, this new program, I'll try that, you know, it's, oh, I'm going to do this. You get distracted and pulled and, 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 and attracted to program after program. And what you do is you try to get to the mustness. All right, what's going to work? What does God, you know, how can I make God do this? In a sense is what you're saying, right? Which is really funny because that violates his freedom. We can't do that. It doesn't work. Now, we can manufacture physical results, but I'm, what I'm excited about is that one of the visions I have for us as a church is to be free of that. Is to be free of that. Let's just trust him. It's not that the must things, the things we must do aren't important, but let's have them come out of the work of God. And, and so what's my, what's, my, what's my decision today? To lift Jesus up to you. For I know if he is lifted up, he must draw all men and women to himself. It doesn't matter who I am. If I lift Jesus up to you and you see him as crucified as the Lamb of God whose love has suasive 
transformative, eternal power, then what, what I tell it's done, my work's done. I don't have to worry, right? Programs are a good servant of the church, but they're a terrible master. Amen? Can I get an amen on that? How many, how many programs have been inflicted on you? Aren't you getting tired of them? Oh, gosh. You know, some new vision here. You know, new. I'm not saying those things aren't important, but they only follow the exaltation of God and his son, Jesus. Does that make sense? What's the implication for two more things? What's the implication for prayer? Well, my mom used to say, God must answer you. It's true. God has answered every prayer you've ever, answer, you've ever offered. He's either said yes, no, or wait. Take it to the bank. If you are a son or daughter of the king, he has answered every prayer you have ever prayed. Yes, no, or what? Wait. Don't ever come to me and say, God has not answered my prayers. Yes, he has. You just didn't like the answer. Right? But he's free. But he must do... Th Where does prayer fit in there? How do, you, how do you weave in there? God, in a very precious way, has given us everything we need to take advantage of him. That's what his promises are. I remember that wonderful story about the Syrophoenician woman, the woman who, who gets barred from Jesus, the woman who Jesus calls, a, who compares to a dog, who's not worthy to receive the children's crumbs. And, 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 and it seems so off-putting. And we read stories like that. We think Jesus is so heartless. But what does he do? He set her up, and she got it. She trapped him. And Jesus loves to be trapped. God loves to be constrained by his words. Remember, he is constrained by himself. Nothing else constrains him. He constrains himself. He binds himself. And God has given us so many promises to pray. And I think what we're doing in prayer, by faith, people often said to me, why do I pray when God already knows what I want? Don't you get it? He wants you to reach into all of eternity and pull the mustness into your life. He wants you to pull the mustness into your life that it must be true. I must have this, Father. I must have more of you. That's the great prayer. I must be trans. He wants us to pull that mustness into us. And that is faith, living and active and free. And that's why a Christian does not pray is not a believer because they've never moved into eternal things to drag the crisis into their lives. You see, prayer, and that's what I love about prayer, what a man is or a woman is on her knees, she is nothing and nothing more. That's honestly, that's what you are. You are never going beyond it. You are never, there is no knowledge, understanding, converting power or work in the world that is not first known on your knees. You know why? Because you are taking all of the eternal issues of his eternity and his mustness and you are taking it to task right there. You said, you said you listen. You said your son said he had to go to the cross. I want to know, I want an answer. Deliver me, rescue me, and rescue the people I love. I cashing in all over, over and over again. So hard that, that it almost sounds irreverent, right? And finally, this is the final word now that I want to, I want you to know that I'm learning most intimately as we close this out because this goes to the table now.
And that is that uh, he must suffer and die. See, there's an implication, finally, as there's an implication for worship, conversion, evangelism, vision, and prayer. This also talks about suffering. Suffering is a must, in a sense. It's one of the ways God's eternal plans are truly at work in the lives of his daughters and sons. Is suffering. Now, what are we tempted to do when things are wrong in our marriage, or we're lonely, when we haven't gotten the things we wanted, we're in physical pain, emotional anguish, fear, doubt, and uncertainty? We want to judge God. Don't we? That's what this generation does all the time. I'm going to judge God. I'm going to put him up on trial. He's got an answer for me for why bad things happen to me. I demand an answer. Has anybody else had that demandingness in their heart before? I have. I want an answer. Why me? Why me? Why now? Why this? This is telling you you don't have a right to judge God. He is free to do what he wants. But what about this must here? I'm not going to answer this in a way that you're going to like. This is how Christ answered my suffering that I've had this past year. And some of you have seen it. It's been, it came to a head this week in a very powerful, powerful way. I, it's, it's, this idea of being crushed, it's so real. All right, what, what, what's going on here? What's, Christ, what's God's answer? I will suffer too. Now, maybe you wanted a written explanation. Maybe you wanted a document that said, this is why your child died, or this is why your parents left you, or this is why you're alone, or this is why your marriage failed, or this is why... And honestly, you know what? If God wrote me an explanation, do you know what we would probably do with it? What good is an explanation? God gives us himself. He gives us his son. And he identifies with the trial, the suffering, the loneliness, the disappointment, the fear, and the doubt of our lives. And he enters into it in order to do what? To rescue us out and to love us better than we ever expected. The startling thing about the freedom of God, his absolute eternal freedom, is that he looked at me, or he looked at you, Sarah, and he said, yeah, I choose that, and everything that comes with it. Praise him. Let's pray. Father, we come to this table. I, I pray that you give us new wisdom. Whatever I've said that isn't worth hearing, I pray that people would forget it. Whatever was worth hearing, I pray that it would not be able to be forgotten. If there are people here who in unbelief you're chasing them and they feel attracted to you, would you give them feet to walk to you, hearts that turn to you? Father, will you freely now choose, freely out of your love, choose to show your saving grace to, our, to us today, to one another?
and show it to us in the table and show it to San Francisco. Show it to this generation. Father, you're under no obligation to love San Francisco. But if you've chosen to, then a lot of mustness has come into play. We ask that the table would have new meaning to us today about your love. And I praise you in Christ that you freely chose to love a man like me. In Christ's name, amen. On the night he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus Christ took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body which is for you, take and eat. And in the same way, he also took a cup of wine, saying, this is the blood of the covenant, this is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins, take and drink. Do this and remember me. Christ, the self-awareness that I was talking about, that I began our message with, his self-awareness is no more vivid, no more vividly seen, no more clearly apprehended, no more uh, tangibly tasted than in this table. This is just the night before, the night before. That's how aware he is of the plans and purposes of his blood and his body and what it would do and what it would do 2,000 years afterwards. So I break this table in his name. And I hope to break this bread and offer this wine to all those who believe. If you have the feather touch of faith, all of these promises belong to you. I want you to come to this table if you know Jesus and you're a sinner. And you're a person who wants to be transformed or has been transformed. Or, and, wants to, and, and the free love of God for you just gets your heart racing. Or you, even if you just wanted to. Maybe it didn't today. And, uh, and the word didn't. But still, if you want God, this is your table if you know him. If you consent, we're going to see to the Apostles' Creed has the belief in the core statements of our church. If you know his body and are part of it, this is your table. This is a table for sinners. Now, every week I say this, and I want you to hear it. It's kind of an anti-altar call. It's an anti-altar call. If you don't believe, if you don't believe in this, then I ask you to respect it and watch it. In fact, I'm hoping as you watch, as you watch as a skeptical man or woman, as you watch that you'll be like, Man, I wish I could have that. I wish I could know God that way. I'm hoping somebody's doing that right now. I, mean, that, that's, I love that idea. That's what the table's meant to do. The second person, though, there's somebody I want to offend. I want to offend people. I like offending people. You can probably figure that out, Charlie. Uh, I want to offend some people. And this is a very, very simple fence, it's called, uh, barring you from the table. Melody, if you think you're a good woman who deserves God's love, you are not worthy of this table. People who think they're good people and righteous don't believe in this worldview. If you think you're a good man or a good woman and that's why you come to God in your goodness, honestly, I think you're not worthy to even vacuum up the crumbs I just made. Only sinners are worthy of the table. Sinners who have put their faith in Jesus. Amen.